melatonin is an area that is widely researched and also loosely supplemented. I saw a girl several years ago who had put herself on 6 milligrams of melatonin for sleep and had reached a point where it was ineffective, causing problems and leading to anxiety over tapering it. I felt that the topic of melatonin is not as simple as it might be perceived to be. I wanted an expert who could navigate the subtleties of melatonin. In today's episode, we will answer three key questions. What makes some of us more melatonin deficient than others? Where do we begin with improving melatonin? What do we need to know about melatonin supplementation? I've had Dr. Catherine Darley on the show before talking about dark deficiency and felt she was perfect, so I decided I must have her back. Dr. Catherine Darley is a pioneering internationally recognized expert in the use of natural, behavioral, and lifestyle medicine for the treatment of sleep disorders. Dr. Darley founded the Institute of Naturopathic Sleep Medicine. She is playing an active role in the development of the field of naturopathic sleep medicine through her original research on naturopathic treatments for sleep and specialist training for other doctors. Let's get started. Hey everyone, I'm Deepa, Light Functional Medicine Practitioner, author and yogini and you're listening to the Sleep Whisperer podcast, the only sleep podcast with conversations and meditations. I'm on a mission to share profoundly insightful sleep conversations with global visionaries that merge together functional medicine and ancient wisdom. Breathe in bliss through weekly guided meditations and let yourself enter the land of dreams. Together, let's unravel the pieces, get to the roots and understand the right tools to transform your sleep completely. Through this podcast, I want you to dream the best version of yourself. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey. Dr. Catherine, welcome back to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. And on our previous conversation about light and darkness, we did interview little tidbits about melatonin, but melatonin is a deep conversation in itself. And that's why I wanted to have you speak about it. And I know that um, there is this big gap in many of us, myself included, between what we do know about something and what we actually do about something. And I think melatonin is definitely one of those. And let's talking about melatonin. um, And I know that we do need to address the elephant in the room when it comes to melatonin, which is 
um, natural ways of uh, allowing our body to release melatonin? When do we need melatonin supplementation? But let's come to that a little later. How do melatonin levels shift through different ages of us? And um, is it affected by anything other than light and darkness? So let's talk a little bit about melatonin in this perspective before we come into all the ways melatonin does work for us. And we did speak a little bit about that on your previous episode, but I'd love to dive in more. So I'm really glad to be back here. Thank you for inviting me. So melatonin is is getting a lot of talk right now, right? We're thinking about our natural endogenous melatonin. We're talking about melatonin supplements. Lots of people are choosing to take it uh, on their own advice. And so let's talk a little bit about our natural melatonin first, and then we'll talk much more about the melatonin supplements. When in, when babies are born, they are not producing their own melatonin. It takes about six months, the first six months until melatonin starts to be secreted in babies. But what's super cool, Deepa, is that women's breast milk has melatonin in it and the melatonin levels cycle like it does in the brain. The melatonin level in the breast milk is more at night and less in the daytime. So if you have a woman who's um, pumping breast milk to uh, give to her baby at other times of day, you probably want to put the time of day on the breast milk and then give it at the same time of day so that the baby's gonna be getting that nighttime breast milk with the melatonin levels in it uh, at nighttime. So that's a cool thing. I, I don't know everybody knows. Um, and then- And, and for a second, I'm gonna stop you for a second, Dr. Catherine, because that was super fascinating. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard this anywhere, but I do want us to also reassure our mothers like myself who couldn't produce enough breast milk and I couldn't have enough adequate breast milk to feed my son. So what is that telling us for the rest of us is that, I mean, I don't want us to worry about the fact that if we cannot feed our babies, that we are not giving our babies adequate melatonin. Does that have any implication for how our sleep, uh, how our children sleep the rest of their lives because we couldn't breastfeed them appropriately. Oh, no. Yeah, please. Don't. I hope that nobody worries about that. I don't want people to worry about that because your baby's going to start producing their own melatonin around six months of age. And then what's really interesting is that melatonin secretion in nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds is really at the peak actually of what it is our entire life. And by the time a person's a teenager, their melatonin uh, secretion at night is a little less than it was when they were that nine or 10 years old. And then by the time you're about 30, you probably have only about two thirds of the melatonin levels that you had when you were younger. And somebody who's 60, 65 years old will have just maybe 20% of the melatonin at each night that they had when they were younger. So, um, you know, that's one of the reasons that I feel more comfortable giving older people melatonin every single night than I do young kids, because with young kids, it's, it's 
unlikely that it is a melatonin deficiency unless they have some kind of medical condition that does uh, that is associated with low melatonin. Uh, so there are a couple conditions that are associated with low melatonin. What the one that comes to mind for those young kids is autism. We find that people with autism have lower melatonin secretion, which is really interesting. And I don't think it's entirely known why that is. It's, um, at this point, it's just something that we observe, but we may not know the full mechanism of why that is. I'm just wondering whether that has something to do with their gut health, because I mean, we've done a lot of episodes on ADHD and autism on the show itself. And uh, some of the things that came up from those experts were that uh, they generally tend to go towards gut inflammatory issues. And since you spoke about how melatonin is is produced to some um, level in the gut on our previous episode. I'm just wondering, maybe there's something associated with that. And so in that context, do you advise um, children with autism being supplemented with melatonin? Yes, generally we don't advise children to be given melatonin long-term but it is recommended for children who have autism and who have ADHD um, and that can help them sleep. And I think for our conversation, Dr. Catherine, you did speak about melatonin at different ages and you said I'm more cautious giving melatonin supplements to a younger child. And I would love to talk about an example of a case study of a client who had come to me, she was 19. And she had been on a melatonin of six milligrams for a few years. And uh, it was neither working for her, and it was giving her very bizarre dreams. I'm not sure if there's anything connected to that. But she was unable to break the cycle of that melatonin supplementation. She also had a sort of a panic when she thought of giving it up and um, it was an emotional attachment she felt I just will not be able to sleep if I don't take the melatonin supplement so before we jump into the supplementation I'd love for you to break that down for us in what pops out to you when I when you hear me talk about that yeah so a couple things come to mind First of all, six milligrams is a lot. It is a, it was what we would consider a pharmaceutical dose of melatonin. Uh, in the sleep field, we don't have people take more than three. Often we have people take 0 0.3, 0 0.5, one milligram. That would be very, very typical. Um, and then I also think, you know, you mentioned that she's taking the melatonin, but she's still not sleeping well, even with it, right? So uh, with that, I think that um, it's not the right compound to help her sleep, or maybe she's getting a lot of light in the evening and, um, you know, it's, it's too too much light and even this amount of melatonin isn't touching the problem. There's also a really interesting 
a thing with melatonin and it's a little bit of a complex idea, but I think it's something that I'd like people to know about. And that is if you give melatonin at different times in relation to the person's sleep period, it can cause their body clock to shift. So if you give a low dose of melatonin uh, six hours or so before their habitual bedtime, their body clock will shift earlier and they'll fall asleep earlier and they'll wake up earlier. If you take a high dose of melatonin right at bedtime, what it will do is it will shift your body clock later. So it takes longer to fall asleep and you you want to sleep later in the morning. And so I wonder your case that you were talking about your, your client, if she was taking that high dose of six milligrams of melatonin right at bedtime, it could have been making the problem worse. And, um, you know, this is a really complex idea that not even a lot of physicians know about, but we hear people say that they have a paradoxical response to melatonin, that it wakes them up, that it makes it harder for them to fall asleep. And I think that that is what's happening when we see that paradoxical response is maybe they're taking too high of a dose at the wrong time and it really is shifting their body clock around. And I think I must add here, Dr. Catherine, that I discovered while working with this young girl that, and I discovered this only a couple of months afterwards, that her sleep rhythm was completely different on the weekdays and the weekends. So she felt yeah. she needed to catch up. And then therefore, she was uh, staying up a bit later on the weekends, watching television, and then she'd wake up on Saturdays and Sundays close to 10 a.m. And then she hoped that on uh, Sunday night, if she took the melatonin, she would be able to fall asleep right away and get back into a rhythm where she could wake up at 6 a.m. the following day. So it was a four hour difference on the weekday and the weekend. And I think that you must talk a little bit about this because this is also a general practice that many of us tend to do. And we don't realize the gravity of how it's affecting our sleep and wake and how we produce melatonin itself because we are kind of confusing our body to keep shifting this rhythm every five days and then again in two days. Right. So um, thank you for bringing that up because if, uh, no, if people don't remember anything else that I say in this whole episode, I'd really like you to remember that the time that you get up is most important to standardize much more so than your bedtime. You can go to bed at different times, but the morning time is most important. And it's for two reasons. One is that time that you first open your eyes, open the shades, go outside. That tells your brain it's the beginning of the day and it sets your circadian rhythm. So for circadian rhythm, it it's, is important. And then the other thing that people may have heard of is your sleep drive. Basically every hour that we're awake, we get more and more sleepy until we reach this threshold at bedtime of sleep onset. You know, we, we get sleepier, 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 and then we can fall asleep. But if your sleep drive on Monday through Friday is starting at six, you're going to get to your sleep threshold at 
10 or whatever. If you, and then on Saturday and Sunday, if you don't start your sleep drive increasing until 10 a.m., then you're not going to get to that threshold until four hours later. And so, of course, your sleep's going to be more disrupted. And so there's both reasons, circadian and sleep reasons, that you really want to standardize your, um, your wake time. And um, I have something actually additional to say if I could continue here. Um, you know, the idea of catching up on sleep, we really, it's really quite well established now that people catch up on sleep. You, what, if you're not getting enough sleep on the work nights, it means that on those work days, your performance is down, your mood is down, your inflammation is up because you're not getting uh, melatonin for as many hours as if you were getting enough sleep. So it's really um, causing your probably long-term um, health problems and, and just well-being problems uh, if you're not getting enough sleep on the work nights. Uh, and we just can't catch up. Even, even a weekend of catch-up sleep on Monday morning, the person's performance is still below where it would be if they had gotten enough sleep for all seven days beforehand. And I know we discussed a little bit about the benefits of melatonin on our previous episode, but I'd love to go into it a little again, simply because I've heard a lot of connection between melatonin and um, cancer, female cancer, and how it's been used even therapeutically in the cancer space. And we did a whole episode on cancer and sleep. So I'd love to talk again a little bit about the benefits of melatonin. Um, and I know that this is something which is, while we might have heard it somewhere, many of us have not really allowed it to stay in our mind that melatonin is needed by our body for several other things other than sleep itself. Right. Yeah. And this is an area that is just exploding in the medical research arena. And it's, it's actually really exciting if you're a, a sleep nerd like myself. Um, with melatonin, um, melatonin has a role in our immune system and, you know, obviously we want to have a strong immune system that's screening our body for those precancerous cells. So that's one reason that just for overall, um, you know, prevention and good health, you want to make sure that you're getting adequate melatonin by getting adequate dark every night. Then with um, cancer, it has been studied in, um, in some specific types of cancer. Um, it's been studied in gastric cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancer, uh, prostate cancer. What's interesting is most of those types of cancer, at least the um, breast, colorectal, and prostate cancer are elevated in shift workers. And what we know about shift workers, of course, is that they're getting light at night, which they shouldn't be, right? And so their melatonin levels are suppressed. Their natural endogenous melatonin levels are suppressed. Um, if you are someone who 
uh, has cancer, certainly do check with your physician, make sure that melatonin is indicated for you. I don't want you to think I'm giving uh, medical advice because although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor, you do want to make sure that you're getting the best care for your individual uh, situation, you know, personalized care. But yes, there is some good um, research on using melatonin for cancer as an adjunct therapy, not as a standalone therapy. And very quickly, Dr. Catherine, are some people more deficient in melatonin than others? And I know that we again just spoke a little bit about this, but uh, which ones of us, I know for sure that I'm more deficient in melatonin than my husband, but what makes us so? Yeah, so um, I mentioned autism. There's a few other conditions that seem to uh, have a deficiency in melatonin. People who have um, colitis or ileitis or pancreatitis also seem to have low levels of melatonin. Uh, it's really, you know, melatonin is much more melatonin is produced in our GI tract actually than in our pineal gland in the brain. The pineal melatonin has this uh, diurnal rhythm, right? This circadian rhythm that follows light and dark. Our gastric um, GI produced melatonin doesn't have such a strong pattern. Uh, and that melatonin just stays locally um, in our GI tract. It may have an action on some other cells in its neighborhood, but it's not gonna enter our overall circulation uh, like the pineal melatonin at night does. So what are your recommendations for melatonin? And do we begin by just our routine? Do we begin with supplementation? Who is it safe for? Yes. So um, like you, I really like people to start with the lifestyle. I think that that is the most sustainable. It has the probably the biggest effect on our health health in terms of addressing the things that we know we need melatonin for, plus all the things we don't yet know, right? And all the things that light and dark does for us in addition to melatonin and, and the topics that we've talked, ab talked about today. And then uh, only doing melatonin supplements after that. Um, one thing that, that came to my mind earlier, Deepa, and I hope it's okay to talk about this is, you know, there's, I think earlier, last time we spoke, we talked a little bit about that difference between things we know we should do and things we do, right? And what's in that gap? And certainly I have that just as much as everybody else, right? Uh, a little too many potato chips over here, right? And I know I shouldn't, and I still do, right? So um, what's in that gap? Like, why do we have this disconnect? And I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, I really like, there's this um, model called the health behavior model. And it, it basically says we, ha we have, there's six pieces that we have to have to translate knowledge into action. And I think about this now when I'm working with with patients is to really 
make sure that those six pieces are in place. So the first two, you've got to realize that there is a risk if you don't do whatever and that you personally are going to be susceptible to it, right? That there's risks to eating potato chips and I personally am susceptible. So there's that. And then there has to be benefits. You have to know that, yes, there's gonna be a benefit. I'm gonna be lighter on my feet and have all the health benefits of being weight appropriate. And then you also have to know that although there might be barriers, you can address them, you can overcome them. So those are the third and fourth pieces. And then the last two are, you have to have a sense of agency that you are someone who's capable of doing this behavior, right? And then the last part, which I think is really important is to have physical cues, to have cues to the action. So for instance, if you're someone who, need, who knows, okay, I need more darkness in that hour before bed to let my melatonin rise, having these kinds of blue light blocking glasses and leaving them on the coffee table right in front of the TV so that you know, you're watching TV before bed, you see the glasses and it triggers that memory of, oh yeah, I'm supposed to wear my glasses now, right? Rather than having them be in a drawer, something like that. And um, you know, when I'm talking with patients, sometimes we now kind of talk through those six things, right? What are the barriers to taking the action? Um, do they really believe it's going to bring them benefit to do that? Because if you don't really believe it, then where's your motivation, right? And um, sometimes there's a difference between things that we know or we hear and that we really believe, right? I think that's true with um, most people have heard by now not to be on the screen for the hour before before bed, but I think sometimes people don't believe it can really make that big of a difference, right? So um, yeah, so that's one thing I've been thinking about in terms of those health behaviors and how do we really get to the point of we practice them and we incorporate them in our lifestyle. I think it's so important you spoke about that gap because as I mentioned to you, for me, it's almost as if some of these knowledge have become the wallpaper in all our lives it's just there and we we see it but we don't even remember it's become part of uh, just being in our space it's not even reminding us anymore that we need to do something but um, before we close the episode I do want to speak a little bit about melatonin supplementation who might need it when might it be needed is it really so safe to be buying over-the-counter and self-medicating melatonin? Is there safety in that? Or do you recommend that someone do see a sleep practitioner for something like melatonin supplementation? Yes, so uh, lots of questions and lots of answers there for us. With melatonin, I like people to go with what are more the physiological doses, the 0 0.3, 0 0.5, one milligrams. Uh, those are going to be 
more equivalent to what a person's body naturally produces when they're young, uh, as opposed to these pharmaceutical doses, which sometimes may be appropriate under a physician's guidance um, for a specific disease. But for general practice, I wouldn't do anything more than three milligrams at the very most. Um, I like plant melatonin. Uh, one thing that people may not know is that most of the melatonins that you can buy are um, synthetically made in a lab, whereas there's one plant melatonin that is made from plants because plants also have melatonin. It's protective for them. And then uh, you do want to think about quality. There was a study coming out of Canada where they pulled 30 brands off the shelf at the grocery store and the amount of melatonin in the capsules was quite variable from what it said on the label, uh, sometimes almost five times as much, sometimes less than was labeled. And then there were some contaminants in the melatonin, uh, a couple of the brands of melatonin. And so if you can get uh, melatonin through a healthcare provider or um, a pharmacy that has really good quality melatonin, I think for this, it's worth doing that. Yeah. And then um, I wouldn't give a young person under 20 melatonin on the long for a long time, uh, unless they have that um, ADHD or autism that we mentioned earlier. Somebody who's 50 or older, I would feel more comfortable having them take a low dose of melatonin for a longer period of time. Any final melatonin words, Dr. Catherine? Another great conversation with you, but anything that you'd like to leave us with today? Uh, I would just like to thank you for being here and to really, you know, knowing that melatonin has all of these actions in the body, melatonin is acting in in every cell. Melatonin is important for mitochondrial health, which we've been hearing more about lately. You really want to make sure you're getting sufficient dark. And if you can't get sufficient dark, then maybe a low dose melatonin could be indicated for you. Thank you, Dr. Catherine. And I know that um, uh, people can find you at your um, Instagram or at your website. Your website is naturalsleepmedicine.net and Instagram at skilled sleeper. And uh, again, once again, I want to honor your time, but thank you for being here today. Thank you. In this episode, Dr. Catherine spoke about melatonin. There was so much information to unpack. Let me end the episode with my perspective. Melatonin supplementations have never been my go-to for resolving sleep challenges in my clients. When the system is off balance or when the liver is congested, it can quite possibly add to several more challenges with this addition. There is so much we can do to gently persuade our body to optimize melatonin release, which is why one of the first thing I have my clients do is regularize sleep rhythms on the weekdays and the weekends and suggest having a routine where you are asleep by 10 p.m. 
my personal mantra for all things health is simplify before you complicate if you have done everything foundational and still need a little scaffolding that is absolutely fine but always begin with a strong foundation of circadian rhythms have a great day Hi everyone I hope you enjoyed the show today just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only it is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional this information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or the professional advice or services if you are looking for personal help on your health journey do seek out a qualified professional please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified healthcare professional it is in no way intended as medical advice or a treatment or cure for any condition be sure to always directly work with a qualified practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com it is important that you have someone who's qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care especially when it comes to chronic health condition be sure to subscribe to the sleep whisperer podcast on your favorite podcast app to get each episode as soon as it launches